In today's episode of the podcast, I'm chatting with Devin about her PhD program. Devin is a PhD candidate at the University of Victoria in the Department of Curriculum and Instruction, and she is working on some of the final stages of her program. So I know lots of you are interested in hearing about some of the journey that she's been on with her learning and what her next steps will be to complete this program. If you are also a teacher undertaking graduate studies right now, you might be interested in checking out our workshop called The Strategic Scholar. We've put together tips, strategies, and tech tools to make your life easier as you tackle your own master's or PhD program, and you can find all the details at kgeducation.ca slash strategic scholar. Welcome to KG Education's Cultivating Connection podcast, enlightening conversations and guided meditations to inspire and connect educators. I'm Leah Oback. And I'm Devin Caldwell. We're the Kenton Girls, and together we make up KG Education. Through interviews and self-care practices, we'll share our passion for professional learning, wellness, and community to cultivate connections for educators everywhere. We believe that teachers are stronger and more impactful educators when they're connected and cared for, and it's our mission to support you with teaching, technology integration, and teacher wellness. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and our website at kgeducation.ca. Connect with us. We'd love to hear from you. And now for the most recent episode of our podcast. Okay, Devin, I'm looking forward to having this chat um, for an update for our audience on your PhD. Let's just start by talking a bit about some of the different graduate studies programs that are out there and what some of the similarities and differences are. Okay, that was something that I know that I've been confused about over the years. And when we use the term graduate studies, that's like a big umbrella term um, for any program that you complete after your undergraduate degree, which is a bachelor's program. Um, As soon as you're done your bachelor's program, anything you're doing after that would probably fall under the graduate studies umbrella. So there's some different things out there. I took a graduate diploma from Brandon University, first of all, which is also called like a post-baccalaureate. We also see that term floating around. And usually that equals one um, year's one year's worth of coursework, so 30 credit hours. Um, And often you can tack another year onto when it becomes a master's program. So there's the graduate diploma and the post-bac, which are kind of a one-year program. Um, And then there's also the master's program. And a master's program is typically two years or 60 credit hours. It used to be at least back in, in my day when I did my master's program. So there's that master's program. And then there are doctoral programs. And usually you can't apply to a doctoral program until you've completed a master's, although I have heard um, where exceptions have been made because the person had already engaged in research or done a lot of like scholarly writing. So the doctoral programs, there's two of them that I know of in the education field. One is an EDD, which is a doctor of education. And then there's a PhD, which is a doctor of philosophy. I commonly get the question, what's the difference between those two programs? And my understanding may not be complete or totally accurate because I've never been in an EDD program. But what I was told was a doctor of education program is more practical for people who want to continue working within a school system. Um, You might see like maybe someone who wants to be a superintendent or maybe a principal of a really large school engaging in a doctor of education program or um, a consultant. 
whereas a doctor of philosophy or a PhD program is more research-based for people who want to work in academia and conduct research. Following um, the PhD or EDD program, there's also postdoctoral work where you, it's, I think that's almost like apprenticing under more senior researchers to further develop your research skills. So there's a lot that goes on within the graduate studies world. And I've already told my family that if I get any crazy ideas about pursuing postdoctoral studies, that they should like lock me up and throw away the key because I'm not doing it. Thanks for filling mm -hmm. us in. I think there's a lot of different programs out there and hopefully that helps to clarify. So for you, tell us about your journey to starting a PhD. What education did you have before? You've mentioned um, you did some uh, work after your B.Ed. You also have done a master's degree. How did you get to the point of deciding you'd start a PhD? Okay, well, I completed a four-year Bachelor of Education degree in early years education. I immediately started a graduate diploma in special education. I had a really wonderful um, prof who was a real mentor to me and she encouraged me to pursue graduate studies before I even completed my bachelor's degree. So I knew that that was something that was important to me. So I did a graduate diploma in special education, which was like one year. And that meant that I could be a resource teacher in Manitoba. I then took, I think I took like one year off and then I started a master's program. So I took like another year of studies and I completed a master of education in inclusive or special education. I get asked a lot if I did a thesis at that point. And no, I did not engage in research at that point. I just did the coursework route. And people have asked me like, was that a disadvantage? And it wasn't a disadvantage in terms of being accepted to a PhD program. That didn't seem to be an obstacle for me because I had done a lot of writing and I had a classroom practice that was really out there. And I think, you know, it was easy for the people kind of looking at my application to find out more about me and know that I was very involved in education. Um, so it didn't hurt me in terms of getting into a PhD program. Where I think it hurt me was all of a sudden I had to be engaged in research and I had no idea what I was doing. So if I had engaged in some real research in a master's program, I certainly would have been better positioned to hit the ground running in my PhD. So if you're someone who's looking at a master's program and you think, no, no desire to move on to doctoral work, then I think the coursework route is absolutely fine for you. If you're starting a master's program and thinking, yep, I, I think there's a chance in the future that I might want to do doctoral work, then I would encourage you to at least explore some opportunities with real research in them. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't always have to be a thesis. So I did my Master of Education at the University of Saskatchewan in Educational Technology and Design. And I could do all coursework, or I could do thesis, or I could do what they called a project. And it was kind of like a mini thesis. In my case, it became almost a thesis mm -hmm. because I got quite in depth with it. Um, but it was a good option for me to experience research without quite as large of commitment as doing a full thesis. So that's something to check into with your program, um, what some of your options are too. Okay, so after the master's degree, what was next? Okay, well, I took a little break. Like I think I finished my master's degree in 2009 and then I didn't apply to PhD programs to, until 2017. And what were you doing in that time? I was teaching full time and I'd also pursued my yoga teacher certification. So I'd really stepped back from graduate studies. I was just really grounded in my work as a practitioner and then exploring some other opportunities through yoga. 
And I kind of thought, you know, like if I don't take the step and pursue a doctoral program now, I'm never going to. So it's really interesting. Like I thought like you just applied to different universities and they'd accept you or not accept you for a doctoral program, but at least in the PhD world, how it works is you need to think about what your interests are and what you might be interested in researching. Then you start looking at the, the scholars and the professors who work at different institutions and you reach out to them and say like, hey, if I apply to the PhD program at your university, would you consider working with me and being my supervisor or my advisor? And so what I had to do was like go through all the lists of of um, professors and scholars at different universities and see who looked like they could be a fit for me. Then consider what locations I would be willing to, to live in because this was before there were many PhD courses online. The pandemic kind of changed that. So yeah, you kind of just have to find that, that sweet spot where there's a place you wanna go and there's someone who's willing to take you on. So I contacted um, my current principal supervisor, sent my um, CV to her and she said yes, she would consider taking me on if I were accepted. Then I went through the application process at the University of Victoria, which is, it's a fairly big process. I had to send in references, I had to send in writing samples, all kinds of things, a full CV as well, my transcripts from all of my other academic work. And then I found out that I was accepted at the University of Victoria and I contacted um, my current principal supervisor and let her know. And she said that, yes, she would definitely work with me. So that was kind of the process to getting there. And then, as I said, there really weren't PhD programs online at that point. So I moved Victoria for the year and I really have no regrets over that because engaging in coursework as part of a cohort of, of students in real life is just a really enriching experience. And I made some lifetime friends out there. I was really immersed in the work I was doing because I did all of my coursework in a year. And I got to build a relationship with my principal supervisor and also work as her research assistant. I got to learn from some other like wonderful profs who I still am in contact with over different things. So being able to do my coursework in person and all at once was a really excellent experience. I was largely distraction free doing it. So I completed my coursework in one year. I did, um, every university has different requirements. University of Victoria has four required courses and two electives. So you only need to take six courses for um, your PhD coursework, but my supervisor, of course, wanted me to take more courses because she felt that that would better position me to be successful in the road ahead. So I did take more courses and I know that that was to my benefit for sure. Okay. So you moved, you lived in Victoria, you completed your courses. Then what were your next steps once the coursework uh, first year was done? 2017, 2018 school year? Yes. Then what was next for you? Well, it's so funny, like maybe other people are more, you know, clued in than I am, but I've always felt like I just kind of never know what's next in the PhD program until it happens. And I think the reason for that is there's lots of differences between institutions and different institutions run their doctoral programs differently. So of course there's the similarities, but there's big differences in how they do it. So I always just felt like it was never revealed to me until it was about to happen. So as I was completing my coursework, I knew that the next thing on the horizon was candidacy. And what candidacy means is you have to kind of prove your ability to be considered as someone who can conduct research. So what I did was at University of Victoria, you actually have to write a candidacy proposal. 
So I had to write a 10 page paper outlining my ideas for research, um, what topic I'd study, the methods I would use, how I would analyze the data. And for me, that was like a huge stretch. I really felt like I had no clue what I was doing at that point. Then I had an oral candidacy or an oral candidacy proposal defense where I then had to have a meeting with my committee that was formed, my principal supervisor formed my committee in consultation with me. So that was two more people. So I had to have a meeting with my committee and they asked me questions about my candidacy proposal. And then they let me know by email later that evening that my, I had passed that portion and that I was ready to move on to candidacy. And candidacy is done in different ways at different institutions. How it looks at University of Victoria is your supervisor and committee develop two questions for you. Generally, one is about the literature and the other is about methodology and theoretical framework. And you are emailed your question. And as soon as they send the email, the seven days begins. So you have exactly seven days from receiving the email until you have to hand in your paper. So you have this topic and you are required to write about a 25 to 30 page paper in a week on this huge topic. So my first one was um, a literature review and what the literature was saying. And so I completed that in a week. It was, I probably never worked so hard in a week in my life. I submitted it, then I had two weeks off while they read it. Then they decided if I passed it or not, I passed it. So then I received my next question again via email and that was the theoretical framework as well as the methodology and it was like a question about my methodology and then about which theoretical frameworks i would use for my research and that one was even harder than the research because i really really wrestled with the methodology as well as the theoretical frameworks i had to come up with three potential theoretical frameworks and again wrote that in a week submitted it and I think that paper was about 30 pages. I think I like literally cried when I hit send. Then my committee read that, they decided if I had passed that portion and then I had to have an oral candidacy defense in person. So I went in, I had to do like a 45 minute, pre like 45 minute long presentation on all of the things I covered in the papers and then I had to answer questions from my committee. So then once um, that was over, they, it turned out actually that um, they weren't completely satisfied with the theoretical frameworks I'd selected. So then I had to do another 10 page paper comparing and contrasting social constructivism with um, sociocultural theory. Then once I did that, I passed my candidacy. So that was, that was tough. That was a, a long haul. And that all took place in the summer of 2018. And at, when it completed at the end of August, I moved back to Manitoba. This is such a long story. And then um, once that was complete, my next step was a dissertation proposal. And I had no idea I would have to write a dissertation proposal. But yeah, you have to write a dissertation proposal. My dissertation proposal was 60 pages long. And yes, I built off my candidacy proposal but and my candidacy papers, of course. Um, but then I had to write this big dissertation proposal that was like the introduction, the literature review, the theoretical frameworks, and the methodology and data analysis. Then that had to go to my committee. Um, it went in three parts. They would send back edits, I'd do the edits, then my supervisor signed off on it, and then I was like said to have passed my dissertation proposal. If it hadn't been the middle of COVID, I would have had to do a dissertation proposal defense as well. And I'm really happy I didn't have to. So at this point in your journey, when you're submitting these papers for your committee to review, 
Had you already determined your research topic loosely or specifically? Yes. My research topic was fairly dialed in before I started candidacy because that was, you know, what everything was about. So it was, it was fairly firm at that point. I just felt like I didn't really have a strong enough knowledge of, of methods or data analysis, but you can't expect your coursework to do that for you. Like, um, it's really up to you to be like this strong and independent scholar who's going to figure things out on your own if you don't know them. So it was a lot of me figuring things out on my own. My supervisor was there to help me. She would guide me, but it was really up to me to do it. And what was your specific topic that you were planning all of this for? Okay, well, originally I wanted to study project-based learning because it's a pedagogical approach I'm really passionate about. But wisely, my supervisor said to me, um, like not a lot of people do project-based learning, Devin, and I'm worried you're not going to find many research participants. And she was so right. So she really guided me to studying technology integration because that's another topic I'm passionate about. And of course, it's a lot more common and widespread in today's classrooms. So she helped me develop a research design where I was going to do a multiple case study studying two rural teachers and two urban teachers. And then I would um, do like a comparative cross-case analysis so that was what I did with my multiple case study um, was studying technology integration in kindergarten to grade two classrooms and then of course data analysis that was a really big one for me too to try and figure out so once you had everything approved were you able to begin research immediately or what did your next steps look like no. So I got my dissertation proposal done. It was approved. I was so excited about that. Then my next steps were ethics. I wasn't allowed to do anything until I had ethics approval. And it took me almost all summer to do my ethics application. And it's, it's big and extensive. And you, um, I had to do like a course from the Tri-Council on, you know, being an ethical researcher. So I did that. And then you have to upload that certification with your application. Then you have to develop all your materials. So I had to develop like a sample survey to go to ethics. I had to develop all the letters that would go to the school divisions, the principals, um, my teacher participants, the families of the children in the classrooms. So I had to develop all those materials in advance and upload them, then complete all the steps of the, of the ethics application. And I was surprised. Um, I really found research, um, the research ethics board, like really nice to work with. They were like really supportive of me. And I submitted my application. They messaged me back um, after a couple of weeks and they're like, okay, this looks really good. We just want this, 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 and that tweaked, make those changes, send it back. And that's all I had to do. And I was approved. So it was a ton of work up front, but getting approved wasn't as hard as I thought it would be. So then once I had ethics approval, I could move on with actually conducting my dissertation study. And keep in mind, this was now at the point fall 2020. And we were like returning to school after remote teaching and learning in the previous spring. The pandemic was in full swing. Life was just turned upside down. So do you think I could get a superintendent to even respond to my research request? No, they had like way bigger fish to fry than some researcher from small town Manitoba wanting to conduct research in their schools. Like they were dealing with huge pandemic issues. So even getting my sites was really hard. It took me like three months to get my two um, school divisions, one rural and one urban. So that was a huge battle. Then once I got that, I was able to send out 
um, my recruitment, which was a survey, and then getting anyone to even take my survey. Like as class, a classroom teacher myself, like I knew we were all just hanging on by a thread and some random email asking someone to take a survey and potentially par participate in a case study just really wasn't on the radar of most people. So it was really hard to get anyone to even fill out my survey. And it took me until December to get four research participants. I finally got my fourth research participant like December 19th. And I was like, oh, it's like the best Christmas gift ever. And then once I had my research participants, I could start with my data collection. Okay, so you conducted your research, you worked with your four case study people, yeah. learned about their classroom practice, mm -hmm. and then what was next? Well, and that had to be changed too, because originally I was going to do classroom observations as well as interviews. Everything had to be switched online, so I changed it to, I did more semi-structured interviews, and then I viewed student work samples online. So that could kind of confirm what my teacher participants were telling me when I could actually see the work samples. So yeah, I did um, online data collection from January to June, and then um, I did all my own um, transcriptions, and I really wanted to like send them off to a transcription service, but my principal supervisor encouraged me that doing my own um, transcripts was a way of engaging deeply with the data and it would help me understand my data much better. So I had like every month, I would have like at least four hours of interviews to transcribe and then I would send them to my research participants. They would read them, make any changes and send them back to me. That's a process called member checking. And I had to do that every month and I just, hated doing transcription that was that was a big chore um and then once i got through all of that it was time for me to do data analysis which i just felt like i had no clue how to do okay so at this point you have completed your data analysis yeah i completed and my data analysis what are you working on right now okay well it was funny doing data analysis um, I was dreading it, but I actually really loved it. And I did an online course that taught me how to use this, um, I guess you'd call it kind of like a data management software called Invivo. So I learned how to use Invivo. I did all my data analysis in it. Um, and then I used a data analysis procedure called reflexive thematic analysis um, by Brown and Clark. And what's really neat is there are two um, researchers who are still very much alive and producing research. And I actually was able to like dialogue with them on Twitter about what I was doing. So that was super cool. So once I got data analysis done, then it was time to return to writing. And at that point I had to write chapters five and six. I'd already written chapter four, which was how I was going to analyze the data. And then I had to do chapters five and six where I presented the data and I had to present my survey results, which was my quantitative data. And then I had to present my multiple case study results. And then I had to like present my cross case analysis. It turned out to be so much that so we had to add an extra chapter to my dissertation and it became a seven chapter dissertation. Okay, so the dissertation is now written and how big is this? masterpiece that you've been working on? Well, my supervisor really wanted it under 200 pages. So um, right now it is at coming out, the conclusion I think is on page 194. And then it's followed by a lot of pages of references and then my appendices that show like my sample recruitment letters and the survey and that kind of thing. Okay. And what are you working on right now today? What were you doing? 
Well, I wrote my conclusion in, oh, I think my chapter seven finished at the end of September. I sent it off to my supervisor. She, even though she's read everything as I've written it and I've done her edits, she read it from start to finish. She sent it back to me with edits for the entire document. And probably today, I will finish my edits for the entire document. Then I will send it to her again. There might still be more edits. Once she's satisfied with it, she will sign off on it and, and it will go to my committee. Okay, and once your committee sees it, what are your next steps to finishing this program? Well, I kind of hope my committee would just read it. And if they wanted to talk to me about it, they talked to me about it at the oral defense. No, they will read it and then they will provide feedback and I will have to address that feedback before I can schedule my oral defense. And as you can imagine, it's really hard working with multiple people providing feedback on the same document because scholars don't always agree with each other. So even though I've been told to do something by one committee member, another committee member might not agree with it. And that can make things challenging for sure. So, so once everybody on your committee is satisfied, Will your defense of your thesis be the final step in your journey? Yes, it will be. I will book my oral defense, and then I think I'll probably fly out to Victoria to do it in person. Um, hopefully, I will pass my defense. And then, I th actually really did think that was done. That would be it. But I have a friend who just defended and passed. And now, she is spending all of this time doing edits from like the people who are publishing her dissertation. And all of our dissertations are published online. It's called UVic DSpace. And I guess you have to work with their copywriters to make your dissertation compliant, like with all of their rules and routines. and you know, whatever they do. And um, that's probably going to be the, the final hoop to jump through, but oh well, hopefully. Yeah, it's never end. Yeah, basically. never end. So you've spoke to many of the challenges and obstacles that you faced and overcome over this um, graduate studies journey. What do you find rewarding about this? How have you managed to keep going? Um, that's a good question. I remember when I started um, my coursework, one of our profs said, like, look around the room. Most of you won't be here to walk across the stage because there's a really bad um, statistic out there saying that sometimes only like 5% of people who begin a PhD complete it. And I remember like hearing that statistic and being like, I will not be one of those people who quit. And even though like many times I felt like quitting, it was just like sheer determination that I started this and I would finish it even if it killed me. So that's, that's motivated me. Like I just did not want to be one of those people who didn't finish. And two of my best friends in the program have both dropped out of out of it. So, I mean, that, that could have been me too. So I was just really determined not to be one of those statistics. Um, and I also really enjoyed my research. So once I got into the point of data collection and every month I got to engage with these four amazing teachers and learn from their classroom practices. And I just loved it. Like I would now consider all four, like, you know, close colleagues and, and friends. Like I, I gained so much from them and they were so great to give up their time and talk to me. So I loved engaging with them and it was just fascinating to me what I was finding out every month. So that kept me moving forward. And then once I started data analysis, I was just like really, really scared about it. And I was like so worried I was going to like screw up and do something wrong. And that then my research would be, you know, thrown out or, or deemed like, you know, worthless or something. And I really had to get over that. I was like, you know, Devin, you've got a wonderful supervisor who is guiding you. She's not going to let you 
screw up. So confronting like some of those fears was really key for me to be able to move on. Um, and then I just really enjoyed data analysis so much. It was actually really fun and cool. And I loved what I found out. Like I was surprised by what I found out. And then other things I found out confirmed what I'd believed for a long time. And then I actually enjoy writing. Um, not always, but I do enjoy writing. So, um, it's kind of funny because all I wanted to do was send my dissertation to my supervisor. And so I kind of almost had a month off and I sort of didn't like know what to do with myself. It was like this gaping hole in my life. I mean, I'm sure I'll fill it, but I was kind of like, you know, like sort of miss it, which is weird. Okay. Well, I know having watched Evan on this journey that she'll make some valuable contributions to the world of education when she very soon gets to the point of sharing her findings and making that contribution. And I've just watched her learn and grow as a close friend and colleague. And I'm super excited that she has put together so many of the things that she's learned to help other teachers as they undertake their graduate studies. Um, so for any of you who are undertaking um, a graduate studies program of any sort, uh, please check out the Strategic Scholar. Devin's got so much to share um, from finding research sources to writing tips and managing some of those um, mental blocks mm -hmm. and some of the efficiency things that you deal with as a teacher who is also a student. So check out kgeducation.ca slash strategic scholar and uh, check out how you can register to learn more from Devin. Thank you so much for tuning in today. You can find more information about today's topic in the show notes. If you know another educator who'd enjoy this podcast, please share it with them. And give us some feedback too. We'd appreciate your rating and review in the app you're using to listen to this. Keep growing, learning, and taking care of yourself. The world needs educators like you.